0: Hey, everyone. It is your friend and neighbor, Samuel Richards. I am so excited for this episode where we talk with Jamie Marich. Um, She has been such a big influence on our show, especially when we talk about process, not perfection. But I will let you get to that in a sec. The first thing I wanted to do was invite you to reach out to us and kind of create that community that we talk so much about on Community Roots, you can email us at communityroots.pod at com, or you can go to Facebook or Instagram and search at communityroots.pod. Um, we have regular conversations with people in our community, and we would love to extend that, especially... Um, if you have any insights or any additions to what we are talking about on these episodes, please reach out. We would love to hear from you. Another thing I wanted to say was our Patreon is launching in about four days. So please go and subscribe to our Patreon. I have already uploaded an additional conversation that we had with Jamie Marich today. Um, we talk about honor and the meaning of honor. So you can um, go ahead and subscribe and hear that sort of clip, as well as things like Unpack That by my mom, where she talks about books that she read recently, or listener questions, where we answer your questions and kind of take an in-depth personal dive. So check it out. I have the information in the show notes. Lastly, if you enjoy what you hear, please head on over to iTunes and rate and review us. We um, get boosted every time somebody gives us a rating, and plus it's so fun to uh, read them. We have a little text chain that goes out every time one of your reviews posts. So um, if you enjoy what you hear, uh, definitely go check us out there. It helps boost us on mental health podcast lists and the top 100 and stuff like that. Well, that's all I have on my end, so I will see you next week, and I hope you enjoy the show today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Community Roots, a place where we gather in community to talk about mental health so we can travel the journey of life together. I'm Samuel Richards. I'm Julie Richards. And today we are Off the Beaten Path with Jamie Marich. Uh, Welcome, Jamie.
1: Hello to both of you. So lovely to be here.
0: Great. Um, I just wanted to say your book, uh, what is it, Trauma in Process?
2: Process well, not perfection. That's yes, blending a couple
1: of the titles, but I like which one you want. I have a trauma made simple and I have a process not perfection, but you've just issued me a challenge to maybe write another one there. I like it. <laughs> the extended version. <laughs> yes, the remix.
2: To be continued. But
0: Process Not Perfection totally plays into this podcast. I think that your title, Process Not Perfection, played into our uh, community roots. Kind of I remember talking about it at the church where we used to record, where we were talking about being in process and how mm. key that was, and that's where like roots you know like uh if you look at the spelling of our community roots it's right in root, so I thought that was really cool i it clicked this morning
1: mm-hmm. as
0: I was like whoa wait jamie marriage is in like four videos i've seen
1: (laughs) cool that's lovely one thing i like to tell people about process that especially in expressive arts therapy process is both a noun and a verb it can be as a verb it's that idea that you're not forcing outcome you're enjoying the journey you're being willing to learn about yourself and what doing the work may reveal and it's also a noun because when we talk about a process, it's something we go through. Uh, in expressive arts therapy, it's a series of practices that we combine together. And the process, the noun, ends up teaching us something. So I love any kind of playing with language that can get us to dig deeper on some of this.
2: Mental. I think health that's mind. one of the phrases that Samuel says a lot on our episodes is, it's about process and progress, and he keeps inter- intertwining the words a little bit and trying to right. land and, with it.
1: And, and where that title came from, Process Not Perfection, is it's based on a recovery slogan, Progress Not Perfection. Mm. And it's it's a well-known recovery slogan, yet as I dove more into my own expressive arts practice and teaching it and really fell in love with his word process, it dawned on me and i ended up writing some poetry about it that anytime we use the word progress in the english language we can probably replace it with process and it has a healthier more enriched connotation so we talk about progress reports what if we call them process reports we talk about progress not perfection what about process not perfection we say works are in progress what if we say they're in process uh to me that implies you know, more will be revealed and there's a richness there. Mm.
0: You know, I also think of like, just to talk about process and then we can uh, get into other things is like, I see process more about the action and kind of the yes. equation that goes and like kind of practicing like the things that make you better. So where it's like progressing is like, well, yesterday I shot five shots and today I shot seven and being mm-hmm. in process would be more about like, well, I was working on my figure as I shot it And so today I think I did it a little bit better. So it's maybe less about the five to seven and more about the time you spent to actually like work on the process of things. So that's why I like it.
1: More qualitative, less quantitative. You get the way I think. There you go. Fantastic.
2: So, Jamie, I'm going to just give a sidebar introduction because of my connection with you. Um, Jamie March is the founder of the Institute for Creative Mindfulness, and this is an organization where I was trained in EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization reprocessing. And Jamie has just a wealth of Books and trainings and teaching, um, writing blogs and keeping people um, informed and growing in the journey of how to reach and help um, people healing from trauma and on so many different levels. And so I, I personally have so appreciated um, sitting under Jamie's teaching um, in her writing and um, online formats and in person as well. And so it is such an honor to have you here today with us.
1: Thank you. It's an honor to be here. And thank you for the kind words, Julie, truly.
2: Pause that. So do we want to go to background first, Samuel, or do you want to just start into pandemic? Or
0: Yeah, how about um, like all of us are here because we're connected to mental health in some powerful ways. What were your kind of first interactions with mental health that led you on this journey of um, being an expert on trauma and writing all these books?
1: So it's a great question and an answer that I'm crafting in a media-friendly way, uh, but I, I feel I could be pretty candid here, is that what qualifies me to speak on trauma more than anything is the fact that I've managed to survive and thrive in my life probably 20 years longer than I thought I would, because Mm. uh, severe mental health issues connected to trauma and dissociation, which also included addiction and flirtations with suicidality and self-injury. There was a time in my life I really didn't think I would make it till 24 or 25. And it was needing to get help, which ended up coming to me in a very backdoor way, that it's the reason I'm here (laughs) in a, in a, a live sense. And it was through having that first mentor, who not only shepherded my journey in my own mental health recovery, but ended up seeing something in me that I couldn't see in myself at the time, that I got into this professionally. So I actually started in undergrad as a history and American studies major. I hated psychology. I wanted nothing to do with it. I thought the psych majors were (laughs) out of their gourd. And uh, so I have a performing background and like to write and like and like history although my love of history kind of now translates to really being passionate about the history of people mm. <laughs> and i basically graduated from college with you know, a full-fledged degree in addiction <laughs> without even realizing it more than more than anything because my i, I went through some traumatic losses when i was a teenager and uh, a long history of bullying and some family discord and I really felt like I couldn't reach out for any kind of professional help, especially because some mm-hmm. of the church environments in which I was raised very much had this mentality of just just go to church, get right with God, get right with Jesus. And any distress that you're experiencing is because you're not right with that relationship. Mm-hmm. And so I was in a very stuck place with a lot of that. And I ended up moving to Europe on a whim, because I didn't know really what else to do. I had just turned 21 years old. I had tried reaching out for, for help half-heartedly to the people closest to me. And I, I was always met with a lot of, you're strong, you're smart, you'll figure this out, or go back to church. Those were the two kind of mm-hmm. answers I got. And and I, I had been to Europe several times already. My family's from Croatia originally, which I'd spent some time in that part of the world. And uh, Croatia and and nearby Bosnia had just come through a brutal civil war in 2000 when I ended up moving there, and I knew that I can get a job teaching English. And so I went, really at the time, it was kind of like a geographical desperation move because I didn't know what else to do, just that getting out of Ohio would presumably help me. And so I ended up going there as an English teacher. And as I say when I do trainings, to make a long story short, I came back passionate about social work and mental health. So I ended up living there for three years. I worked in a children's home, uh, primarily with kids who had been displaced Uh, from the recent civil war and it ended up being a crash course in working with trauma because you can't work in a post-war zone and not learn about trauma and its impact on kids its impact on people's ability to to just function and also at that same time I, I had the privilege and I see this very much as a god or spirit moment in my life of meeting my first mentor my first recovery sponsor who was a woman from Cleveland Ohio and I'm from <laughs> Youngstown so wow. it's only about an hour away and and I ended up meeting her in the Croatian part of Bosnia Herzegovina wow. and uh, she she had moved there in her retirement because she had gone on aid runs during the war and one of her real tasks was to try to get some treatment started uh, in the post-war environment, and she brought some 12-step meetings there. And I just got to know her in the community and like her. And there's a saying in 12-step recovery that it's really about attraction rather than promotion. And she was very much that for me. She didn't try to force recovery on me. She just Mm -hmm. got to know me as a person so that when I continued to struggle with some of my own addiction issues, I knew I could talk to her. And she met me with the piece of advice that ended up just changing my world. And after she heard a little bit of my story, uh, she was the first person who ever validated that what I experienced was traumatic. Because at that point it was just, oh, it's what Vietnam vets experience. That was my only reference for trauma. And she said, Jamie, after everything you've been through, it's no wonder you became addicted. It's no wonder you dissociate. It's no wonder you have all these struggles. So what now? What's the plan now? How can we go forward? What can we do about it now? And I always say that in that advice really lies the heart of my approach now to working with trauma, that you have to validate people's experience first, that if you come in with tough love, you're going to shut people down. But then after you can validate a person's experience, they will be more open to hearing what you have to say. And so my engagement with her over there while working with traumatized children was essentially my treatment center. It was my first real experience and having a trauma-informed mentor, a trauma-informed social worker who was at my side, and then after i had about a year of my own recovery she sent me back kicking and screaming to go to graduate school and i (laughs) protested saying but i didn't even like psychology what do you mean (laughs) me to be a professional counselor and she ended up saying trust me you'll be good at it she said i see the way you work with kids i see what you've done in your own recovery and she said you already know a lot of the art of this now you just have to go back and learn it technically and i've not regretted the marching orders she gave me ever since. So that's how I'm, that's how I'm here. (laughs)
0: Wow, crazy story. That's incredible.
1: It's My story, sticking to it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And one of the earlier books that you had written, Jamie, that I really love is Trauma Made Simple. Mm. And I wonder if you could just kind of even explain the title of that. I love both sides of the coin of that, I guess.
1: Yeah, because I took some criticism for the title uh, from one of the leaders of the field, especially who said, well, there's nothing simple about trauma. And so I'm very clear to say in that, of course, there's nothing simple about the way that unhealed trauma can play out in the human experience, that there's a, especially when you're dealing with complex trauma, which is a construct that we now talk about, um, it can be tangled and messy and, and all of that. So I never want that title to sound like it's a slam against people. Yet on the other hand, I do think the helping professions can overcomplicate matters quite often, hmm. When we, especially when we deal with trauma and dissociation. And Julie, studying with me, you know that this is a big passion area of mine that when we're dealing with the manifestation of dissociation, particularly with trauma, Professionals can get so worked up over, but I don't have enough technical training to deal with it. And you know, what do I do? What protocol do I follow? <laughs> what therapies do I get trained in? And, and those are often very well-intentioned sentiments, but they can lack the made simple part, which is attuning to the therapeutic relationship, which is getting to know a person without trying to fix them first. Uh, to me, the heart of a made simple approach is what Janet did with me, validate and mm-hmm. then challenge. And anybody who has studied with me, you could not get out of one of my courses alive without hearing my my teaching that trauma means wound. The English word for trauma Mm -hmm. comes from the Greek word meaning wound. And I really truly believe that looking at that parallel between physical wounding and emotional wounding. So think about anything you know about physical wounding. And there's likely a metaphorical comparison to emotional and spiritual wounding, like wounds need to heal from the inside out. They often take a short time to cause, but a very long time to heal. And really what we're doing when we're talking about trauma-informed care is it's wound care. Mm-hmm. And so my, uh, my kind of quick and easy definition of trauma when people ask me, what's trauma? It's any unhealed wound, because the trauma itself mm-hmm. is not the problem. The wound itself is not the problem. A person can get wounded And if they're given the adequate time, space, and resources to heal that wound, they can go on being unaffected. But for most of the folks we're working with and treating, it's seeing the manifestations of those wounds that have never been healed. So Mm -hmm. the essential thesis Mm -hmm. of that book is that what we're doing in trauma care is wound care. And appreciating this wound metaphor is really the heart of trauma and how to treat it. Uh, And so that's very much the humanitarian me saying that. And I think that's part of the made simple stuff that we're missing. So mm-hmm. yeah, it is because both ends.
2: Yeah. If we don't translate it on any level, then people might stay away from it. Similar mm-hmm. to what you said with dissociation, which maybe for our listeners who don't know what you're talking about, we could define.
1: Yeah. So dissociation, I also go to word origin with that. It comes from a Latin root meaning to sever or to separate. And probably the most popular manifestation of dissociation that the general public is aware of is zoning out. Zoning out, maybe blanking out time, blanking out sensations, uh, excessive daydreaming. But dissociation can also take the shape of things like playing on your phone too much, playing on social media too much, um, kind of disconnecting from your life in order to either meet a need or to protect the self and dissociation is really an inherent part of the the human brain. We all do it. I mean, even some of the examples I just mentioned, you likely have done it at one point or another or may continue Mm -hmm. to do it, but in the presence of real unhealed trauma, especially at these early developmentally vulnerable stages, dissociation can become like a normal default setting on the brain, and Uh, early childhood survivors of complex trauma can spend a lot of their lives in a very dissociated state. Uh, So yeah, on one hand, that could feel very complicated and very overwhelming. But the made simple part of that is, it's just the brain's way of protecting Mm ourselves. It's just the brain's way of trying to get a need met. And that's some of the made simple approach I take with dissociation, for sure.
2: Mm -hmm. And I think in doing that, you make it so much more relatable and something that people can connect to and say, oh, yeah, that does make sense. I can see that in my own life and and then feel maybe less intimidated by trying to help support someone else who's going through something traumatic.
1: And you hit a great phrase there, less intimidated. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a goal of a lot of my writing whether it's professionals, other people in human services, uh, because I certainly feel that my books have an applicability for let's say pastors or educators who are attuned to the social vulnerabilities that their students are facing. Because at the end of the day, being trauma informed is for anybody who works with the public. And my hope is that we don't feel so intimidated when we Mm -hmm. see the signs of trauma or dissociation or scared or like it's out of our range because uh, part of this made simple approach to it is be good to people, be kind to people. Yeah. Uh, don't try to fix people. <laughs> uh, of course you can help them work through solutions, yet that has to come only in the context of have you first received that person as a human being who is going Absolutely. through a human struggle.
2: Mm-hmm. And what would you speak to now in these current times that we're in a pandemic and there is so much suffering on so many different levels. Everyone has a unique story of how it's affecting them personally, yeah. but just also the the global sense of fear or pain or panic or suffering. What would yeah. you speak to that?
1: We have to acknowledge first and foremost that the world is in a state of collective trauma right now, collective wounding right Absolutely. now, and just like exploring the wound metaphor I brought up earlier, some wounds may pierce deeper than others. Some wounds may feel bigger for certain people than others based on resources, based on ability to cope, based on setting. So I think we, you know, again, it's another both and that we can appreciate that everybody's going through something right now. There's some, as some of the kids would say, you know, feeling some kind of way about the way that, that this current situation is affecting them. So you're entitled to your feelings. You're entitled to to go through what you're going through. That's 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 the one hand, and on the other hand, recognizing that everybody's struggle is different here. Um, like, even as I'm commenting on this, I'm saying this as a person of tremendous privilege who was able to work from home, who has a lot of good inherent emotional resources for adapting. Because even when all of this hit, it was a sense of, okay, let's transition my business online. I can do it. And uh, for me, it's also a time of I'm not traveling. I travel a lot for work and I'm not I probably won't be getting on a plane till the fall if that and that's and that's a norm for and that's not the norm for me and so I'm approaching this as a time to really kind of reevaluate and, and adjust and recognize what's important and how do I rest and take care of myself yet I'm also aware that not everybody has that privilege because many folks especially in their social or physical isolation are living in in terror terror-ridden environments right now Mm -hmm. like because i've even reflected on uh, i i was in you know i've survived (laughs) two pretty horrible marriages in my adult life uh if i was locked up with a dysfunctional partner in a dysfunctional family, you know construct i i would not have this level of optimism and enthusiasm you're seeing coming off of me so i think what what we have to acknowledge is that everybody's going through this differently that yes we may be dealing with the same general collective wound right now but to appreciate people's own process and allow them the space to do that and wherever possible show kindness and refrain from judgment Um, because obviously i have a lot of strong feelings about some of the attitudes people are taking Mm. like those who (laughs) spread misinformation and those who gather in public protests when (laughs) god that's the stupidest thing you could do so of course i can get judgy um i'm not (laughs) saying i'm a, a saint for that by any means but particularly when i'm dealing with people's individual experiences as they come to me um you know i part of what being a trauma therapist asks me to do is that even if i was seeing one of those protesters as a clinician i would have to look at and explore what's their fear that's being activated
2: Absolutely.
1: Because we all have some kind of fear, I believe, that's being activated in this.
0: So I was curious, kind of, uh, how can you be a support for people in their trauma and yet also, in a way, protect yourself from that trauma? Like, yeah. I, I imagine it's something that counselors and therapists have to deal with a lot in sure. terms of because I see myself turning into more of a support for people, but also at the same time, I'm like, Oh, like, <laughs> this isn't easy for me either, even though I'm totally coming from a place of privilege as well. Like, um, it's still, I, I'm kind of like, uh, so yeah, how how, how can yeah. you shoulder that?
1: So, it's a great question that trauma therapists navigate in regular circumstances, <laughs> let alone what, mm-hmm. what we're going through now. And, and I think it goes back to the theme of this interview, which is a both and, that you can be caring and compassionate and open-minded and open-hearted while also taking care of yourself and honoring and respecting your boundaries. So, for instance, during all of this, I obviously have a lot of friends who want to connect, a lot of professionals I want to connect, and I've had to hold the boundary really clear. Like After 7, 8 in the evening, I really can't get on the phone. <laughs> I need my time to just chill binge watch something do some art and just just give myself that space and then during the daytime and early evening hours I'm able to be more readily accessible for folks I also throughout my career have had a pretty strong morning routine that I do that involves grounding getting myself settled taking care of myself first so that I can be more open to others Uh, And and two other strategies I wanna share that I I think any of us who work in the field, and this is hopefully useful to those of you who don't but still work with people, is to have some kind of shielding or boundary technique that you use. So it can be something like you see in Star Wars or Star Trek, like deflector shield up. Like (laughs) I may be imagining this like healing ball of light or a force field coming over me that still makes me open and accessible to people, but the, the kind of mythical quality of that visualization kind of deflects any of those energetic bullets from coming at me so that I don't get affected too hard. Another technique I like to do is something called flicking, which is to kind of literally flick your hands down to the ground after you talk to somebody. Kind of as a way of saying, all right, I was there. I was able to be present with them, but now I'm sending that energy away from me. Mm-hmm so I don't carry it with me throughout the day. Kind of like a good cat lover. I have a spray bottle, I have a couple spray bottles in my office and I'll often spritz or mist myself throughout the day, just as a way to kind of take a quick instant energetic shower. And the other strategy I wanna share that I actually use as a friend more than anything, and and obviously I can use it clinically from time to time, is the line or the question, how can I support you? because mm-hmm. I, I, Julie, I'm sure you can speak to this, that when you're a, a therapist and a good one and a trauma therapist, uh, you know, a lot of your friends will naturally yep. <laughs> want want to talk to you, and, sure. and, and when a lot of folks, just friends and family come to me kind of sharing openly, I, I honor that, yet I don't want to assume that they want me to go into therapist mode, nor is that my job in that context to go into therapist mode. So I often ask the question, how can I best support you here? What are you looking for here? And honestly, what most people end up wanting or needing is what Janet gave me all along. Validate the struggle. And then challenge in some way or really try to give them at least some kind of nugget to think about that might lead them towards a solution. Mm -hmm. Because I'm all for venting, don't get me wrong. I'm a big venter. I need to (laughs) expel stuff to my friends and my contacts and my my close circle quite often. But the best friends and the best supporters in my life are the people who don't let me stay kind of stuck in my stuff, Mm -hmm. but who hear me out And then our conversations usually end with, well, what's the plan here? And that plan may be, I'm going to bed. It doesn't have to be mapping out a treatment plan for the rest of your life. (laughs) It could just be, after this conversation, I'm taking a hot bath and going to bed. That's the plan.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Be on your way. Go for it, mom. (laughs) I keep wanting to
2: hear more of your questions, Samuel. I always love how you process things. I'm like, okay, Samuel, speak up.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's also like, as with our episodes sometimes, like, these are things that are affecting my day-to-day. Sure. So, <clears throat> for you all, it might be a reminder, or for mom, maybe it's like, oh, I remember reading that in the book, but for me, it's like my first time processing it, so I'm, like, thinking about coronavirus, I'm thinking about, like, past trauma, so... Um, as with our episodes, they're always so relevant and so here. So it's just like, oof, I need a to process too. <laughs>
2: yeah, it's a lot to take in. And like you had mentioned, I think a moment ago, Jamie, uh, that the trauma that we're going through globally can tap into our, our own traumas.
1: Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Anytime I see an extremist protester spouting conspiracy theories, it taps into some stuff I was raised with for sure. Hmm. And I I'm able to, to see it now without totally decompensating. So I think that's a sign of my own where my own healing has taken me yet. It can still bring up a certain kind of feeling in me. And I think whatever the public forum is bringing up in you, it's important to acknowledge it and honor it. Cause I don't think we do that enough. We don't acknowledge how public events may be affecting what's going on with our folks privately. And, you know, Julie, you would know as an EMDR therapist, a common question we might ask is, what is this reminding you of? What is this floating Mm -hmm. back to? What is this tracing back to? And there's a lot of stuff being hit on right now. And and what would it
2: look like for us to honor our experience? I think that's something that we're obviously wanting to do with our clients in session, but... Mm -hmm. Most people would have no idea what does that even really look like?
1: Mm -hmm. You just nailed it on the head right there, honor. Uh, In the new, well, in the existing book, Trauma and the 12 Steps that I wrote, and in the new edition of it that's coming out here soon, a phrase I use citing one of my old bosses is honor the struggle. I think too often people can be hell-bent on, hmm... Let me go there. Shoving our opinions onto others <laughs> as opposed to listening with mm-hmm. an open heart and an open mind. How is this affecting you? And I spoke to a lot of that as I shared previously that part of honoring the struggle is recognizing people are experiencing this individually. Right. And so help me understand how this is impacting you. What fears of yours are being triggered here? and then whether we're therapists or friends or family members supporting others a good question is how can i support you and if what they give us is something we cannot do then i let people know um because for instance I, i remember i had a very tricky time years ago with a client who let's just say had political and public forum views that were very different than mine uh a lot of conspiracy theory beliefs that were fueling her anxiety and clearly there was much tra- counter transference on my end because I already mentioned that's a lot of the source of my anxiety when I see people spouting that right and as a therapist I had to, you know I, I had to hear her out how is all of this what's going on right now in in public life affecting you And when I asked her how I could support her, she wanted me to kind of of co-sign her stuff and agree with her. And I ended up letting her know, well, I believe very differently than you do. Mm. So I can't give you exactly what what you're looking for in terms of that. But would that be a deal breaker for us to continue working together? Mm. And then from there, we moved on to talk about how we can still do EMDR together. So. I think part of honoring the struggle is being willing to listen and also being willing to acknowledge your own limitations about what you can or cannot do to help somebody.
2: One of the ways that I have processed that out a little bit in some of my sessions is the idea of rather than trauma constricting us into um, more narrow thinking, but to actually look at growing our capacity to be able to hold oh, for sure. more, that there are so many different views and opinions and feelings and experiences that are so unique. And so we can take that process of trauma to expand into a place of post-traumatic growth Precisely. where we have capacity to hold more.
1: Precisely. Yeah. And you, as you were talking, you sound like one of our team members here at ICM who I'm mentoring, a fellow named Adam O'Brien, and we've done some writing together, and he will often say, let's not assume that trauma has a negative connotation, because for a lot of folks, and Julie, I think you hit as to the reason why, it, it is because of what it opens up, that that post-traumatic growth, and, and I'm all for that. I'm totally all for that. I do think we have to be mindful, though, about not pushing people to see the silver lining before they're right, able to. Right, sure Mm -hmm. Uh, because the people ask me a lot, what do I think about the word resilience? Of course, I'm all for the word resilience, like resilience and the concept of it is something I do believe that is inherent. I'm all for fostering resilience skills in folks. Yet sometimes people can get shut down in experiencing and feeling what they need to feel because well-intentioned therapists or teachers or parents will say, you know, be resilient, be tough, rise above. And it, it's it's both and. Of course, you can do all of that. But to truly do that, I believe we first have to let people have space to feel what they need to feel and acknowledge, validate that the pain and the wound is even there.
2: Absolutely. And the grief needs to be able to be felt and processed and worked through before you start.
1: For sure. That and, there's a
2: resilient side to it.
1: And thank you for bringing up the word grief, because that's another part of all of this. To acknowledge that many people are grieving hard right now. It uh, could be grieving your business, grieving your plans for your business, uh, grieving death uh, or gr- you know, grieving the death of, of a loved one. Um, it could be grieving like I think of what our high school seniors and college seniors are going mm-hmm. through right now. Um, and, and grief is valid. It's it's valid just as trauma is valid. And part of the approach I take in Trauma Made Simple is that grief is a wound just as trauma is a wound. Mm-hmm. Some wounds may affect people more deeply than others, but all wounds need the time and space and sometimes some outside resources to be able to heal. And they may heal at differing degrees, at different levels of intensity, and recognize that how you heal may not be how everyone else heals. Mm-hmm.
0: For sure. Cool. Well, um, let's transition into your um, upcoming book on July seventh. It sounds like you're putting out your second edition of Trauma yes. and the Twelve Steps, and I think this is a super interesting um, concept. So, could you break it down for us real quick, and I then we can, can ask some
1: questions. Uh, and it's a lovely tie into the whole theme of this interview, which has been really both and, and looking at things on on two sides of the coin. So as I mentioned, I'm a person in 12-step recovery. Uh, I still acknowledge and credit it as being very vital to getting me sober and getting on a healing path. Yet, it's also not lost on me that there's a lot of criticism of 12-steps, especially from mental health and trauma-focused providers. And honestly, I have a lot of criticism of what I see people Mm. do in the name of the 12 steps, whether that be in treatment centers or in meetings out in the community. And I was very privileged and blessed to have a 12-step sponsor and mentor who understood trauma. And I truly believe that if Janet, who I talked about earlier, did not understand trauma's role in my addiction, I don't know if I would have stayed around 12-step recovery based Mm. on a lot of the things that, that I saw and so when i started teaching on trauma on more of a national level i would share a lot of similar things to what i just shared with you now and i got feedback from folks that wow you have a really nice way to bridge the gap between the trauma view of addiction and the kind of traditional 12-step view of addiction because yeah I, i routinely have found that a lot of folks some of who are very well known in the trauma community don't want anything to do with my work because I still endorse the 12 steps that there can be that much hatred and vitriol about the 12 steps. And then you have 12 steppers who can say we're complicating things by focusing too much on trauma and mental health Mm -hmm. and just don't drink and go to meetings. And so in this spirit of being a bridge builder and a both ander in in 2012, (laughs) I wrote the first edition of trauma and the 12 steps. And I, I think this story is important because I had two publishing offers back in 2012, one wanted me to focus too much on the addiction and the other wanted me to take 12 steps out of the title and focus mostly just on the mental health and the trauma aspects of it and I told both publishers, you're missing the point because Mm -hmm. what I want to be able to do here is create a volume that really is both and and they it felt that that would be a deal breaker for both of their <laughs> markets. So I proceeded ahead and published the original edition of it on my own uh, as part of my own publishing wing of my company, which is now called Creative Mindfulness Media. And I'm glad I did because that book, probably more than any others, has opened doors for me uh, to a lot of people I now work with, to a lot of uh, venues I now speak in and people who knew what I was doing knew what I was doing. And so it's interesting because that book, and when you write books, they kind of become like your babies, your heart projects. <laughs> and and, and you know, Julie, you know this as a mother that uh, every child kind of has their own character. And and this is one that that is really like near and dear to my heart. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really grateful to North Atlantic Books who's published this revised and expanded edition because all these years later, they see what I'm trying to do with it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so yeah, they signed me on because it's it's been seven, almost eight years since the original edition was released. And a lot has changed in the field of traumatic stress studies. We have more, more research, more data, the DSM codifications have changed. So I've updated the new book for that. And I've also added two new chapters in the new edition. One to specifically work with diversity issues as a trauma informed matter. Uh, so for instance, I have a chapter looking at being more embracing of the LGBT community in 12-step and treatment contracts constructs, being more embracing of folks who are essentially not the white Christian norm for which the 12 steps were created initially. Mm-hmm the white male Christian norm, I should say. And then we also have a separate chapter looking at spiritual diversity. So really honoring this idea that at their heart, the 12 steps allow for spiritual diversity, talking about this term of higher power instead of God, but calling out that in a lot of parts of the country and the world, people have put their own stuff on their interpretation of the word higher power. And that we really have to be open to acknowledging that folks may contact higher power through more eastern paths like meditation or yoga some people identify as atheist and agnostic and they can still get sober Uh, some people like me are mutts when it comes to our spiritual background because i still identify as christian in a lot of ways but i do a lot of eastern practice as well and uh i just i just draw from a lot of different faith paths so the book goes into more of that content too basically saying that all of this issue of inclusion really does matter when it comes to trauma informing things.
0: So uh, how does your like proposed um, updates to it, how does it kind of address these issues with the LGBTQ um, Mm. like directly, how how does it go? And uh, yeah, I was also wondering if you wanna tackle two questions at once, is like um, for like the atheists, I, yeah. I'm curious about the higher power thing and how that sure. works in uh, an atheist standpoint.
1: Yeah, I'll gladly answer both questions. Well, let's let's start with LGBTQ first. Um, I am a out bisexual woman, so it's something that's very near and dear to my heart, and I tell a very personal story in the new book that a very dear friend of mine in the program, in the twelve step program, who is trauma informed in so many ways would say things to me like, well, is bisexuality really a thing? Like, I, you know, I don't get people who, who can be with both men and women because it just feels like that's an area of confusion. And so there's a lot of myths and misunderstandings that are put out there in general in the community that can show up in 12-step constructs. And a voice I'm really taking in the book is check your own biases learn from people who are a part of that community so that you're not projecting your own stuff onto people because addiction mental health issues suicidality is such so disproportionately higher in the lgbtq plus community where shame has been a big part of the construct in which so many of us were raised or however that may be that don't meet us with more shame at the door <laughs> with your own biases and, and misinformation. So that that's a big challenge that I make is just to clarify um, some of the myths that I've heard out there, even in, in recovery constructs. I also talk about the importance of helping folks find LGBT specific meetings if that feels like it's an appropriate fit for recovery. Because I know even at 12 years, four, between 12 and 14 years sober, I really ended up getting a good reboot in my recovery by starting to, you know, go to LGBT meetings. And I also tell the story of uh, my current sponsor who is a 78-year-old gay man who has been out for 50 years. And that breaks a lot of 12-steppers rules of what should happen with sponsorship because they usually say men with men, women with women. But you can't be that binary, especially when you're dealing with, with folks who've had different experiences, whether it be with gender or sexuality. And I also discuss how one of the reasons I decided to sponsor people again, not as a counselor, but just as a recovery guide, is I realize that there's a lot of misunderstanding about sexuality in 12-step rooms and in 12-step treatment centers, and I'm happy to make myself available as a sponsor. So do you have any follow-ups on the LGBT end? Before yeah, we go yeah, to- yeah, um-
0: that's a great. Yeah, I love how we have videos so you can see my nonverbal cues. <laughs> oh, yay. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, uh, I really wanted to highlight what you said just because part of my background that I de- identify with really closely is like, um, an activist I, sure. I definitely see myself as an activist and I so believe going into the community the people who are actually within the community that you're trying to project onto and asking them what their experience has been yes like uh, I know even within the LGBTQ uh, population there's like people who are just gay and lesbian and they're like oh yeah the other ones don't really count you exactly. know? like those are just fake Yep, and it's just like just as depressing, you know, in terms of whenever we talk about inclusion or creating a safe Mm -hmm. space, which I imagine benefits the twelve-step program a lot to create a safe space. And you go right in to the door, and you're turned away. It's kind of like, where can I even go? But so I I like that.
1: Yeah, and you bring up a great point that there's even battle and infighting within the LGBT plus community, and. As part of meetings, I've been a part of we've we've had to address questions like, how can we be more trans inclusive, even in our more opening in our opening statement, because there's so many soapboxes I can get on yet. I'll just say you've you've identified that accurately, Samuel, that what we're really trying to do is get people to look past their own biases to and, and a term that 12 step recovery uses quite a lot is experience, strength and hope. That, mm-hmm. even as a sponsor, what I am sharing with people is my experience, strength, and hope it's not my opinion it's not my advice it's this has been my experience. So learn from other people 's experiences um, that's how you grow as a person in recovery, and that 's how you become a more welcoming individual so that's actually a good dovetail into your other question about atheism and uh, folks who identify as atheist or agnostic so Interestingly enough, my my sponsor, who I talked about, his husband, is a professed atheist. He knew he was an atheist from when he was a child. He was raised in the church and just did not, he could not integrate it. He could not accept it. And I asked him and I interviewed him as part of this book, you know, Michael, how have you survived in 12-step rooms where there's so much God talk and so much spiritual talk. And the first thing he's like, Jamie, I really believe you can be spiritual and an atheist, especially if you approach spirituality as the connection between people and really using that as as your higher power. And he said, of course, some of the overemphasis on prayers and God language and meetings can bother him, but he's not let that be a deal breaker for him. And what really helped him was having a first sponsor who didn't try to evangelize him. He said he didn't care at all that I was atheist and just accepted me and loved me as I was. And I also share about another eye-opening experience I had that many years back, a client of mine uh, came to me knowing my work with Trauma-Informing 12 Steps, and he was at a real struggle place because he knew he was atheist, but felt like challenging that in meetings challenging God talk and meeting somehow made him less of a recovering person mm. and so we looked at that really as a trauma issue and he ended up having a story published in a collection of recovery stories by atheists and agnostics in 12-step programming and the cool thing was he ended up sending it to me just as a thank you and I read the book and I was going through even as you know, a believing person was going through a huge dark night of the soul right when he sent me the book I, the Second marriage I was in was really starting to take a dive. It was affecting me. I I was kind of in a weird place with God. And even as a believing person, reading that book for atheists was a game changer for me because it helped me to see there are so many other facets of my recovery other than God (laughs) that I can lean into. And I appreciate the candidness, I appreciate the authenticity of folks who are willing to say, Hey, I'm still showing up at these meetings even though a lot of what mm-hmm. you're doing is excluding me. And mm-hmm. I, I am a fan of candidness and authenticity and people being who they are. That's one of the reasons mm-hmm. Daryl and Mike, my sponsor and his husband are in my life because they have been out in the state of Ohio for decades. And mm-hmm. one of the reasons I want them in my life is I want what they have. I want that level mm-hmm. of willingness to just, this is me, take it or leave it. And that kind of genuineness, I believe, is required for long-term sustainable recovery.
0: I just uh, wanted to kind of tie together to kind of what you've been saying with, I I just think with like groups that aren't in the majority. Yes. um, In the majority, not even in terms of population, but just in terms of culture. Sure. In terms of like, if you aren't white, male, and Mm -hmm. Christian living in the suburbs, Um, and rich, yeah. uh, then like it, it creates complications. And I think to, uh, just, I mean, I also identify as bisexual as well. And so there are a lot of communities, um, that just like you walk into and you already feel unwelcome mm-hmm. and just like the nature of it. And I also see that with atheism as well, in terms of there are more churches than there are Subways or McDonald's. So you're mm-hmm. constantly surrounded by it. And I think creating a space for those people is for everyone is really important to create space for that. And kind of, um, I love the going back and looking over the 12 steps too, because it's a way to revise and say, like, let's re look at this under the lens of LGBTQ and look at it again under the lens. And I think that's so cool that you're also gaining so much insight, um, from an experience that's not your own, that's like, you don't necessarily believe in atheism or not believe in God, but uh, mm-hmm. you're still gaining such a perspective from somebody who doesn't. And I think that's what we're missing <laughs> in a lot of our culture.
1: Amen. And the the kind of final story I use in the book, um, and I could say this without giving too much away because it's such a thread through my teaching, uh, is the teaching of the late Ram Dass, uh, Richard Alpert, who just died at the end of of 2019, who said, we're all just walking each other home.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And I really try to adopt that as a life creed. Uh, Because yeah, I know what I believe. I have very strong beliefs, and I'm willing to share my experience, strength, and hope on it. But I also know I don't have all the answers. And I've Mm -hmm. often learned the most from the people who differ the most from me.
0: Hmm.
1: So it's, yeah, that that really kind of sums it up that we're all just walking each other home, whether that be through this crisis, whether that be through mental health struggles, addiction struggles. And I think if more of us could see the people we're walking with in that way, we would have less struggle, less battle. Yeah, I'm
2: curious. This is just a question as we're closing up. I'm is there anything from the recovery movement or language that speaks specifically to the pandemic, maybe to bring it full circle? Hmm.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'll just go with what's coming up as you ask the question. I think of what my first go with sponsor- that, Jamie. Yeah, I'm going with that. <laughs> go I, with that. <laughs> I think of what my first sponsor, Janet, would have said. And it's very similar to what my current sponsor, Daryl would say that in this pandemic, it is just one more day to stay sober.
2: Mm.
1: And a, a phrase that is often used in recovery lingo that I have a love-hate relationship with is the whole one day at a time. <laughs> because yeah, I, one, of, one of the problems I have with that phrase is if a person is still stuck in a trauma narrative or mm. a piece of unhealed trauma, what happened 50 years ago can feel like today. So it can be overwhelming to actually stay in the moment or stay in the day. But I do think recovery strategies can help us to learn to live one day at a time for sure. So I see the the phrase more as a goal, but I will say in this pandemic, I have had a new understanding of what one day at a time really means mm-hmm. because I don't know what's happening with my business day to day. I, okay. I when everything closed down in Ohio at the end of March, my mindset then was, oh, we'll still be able to do our retreat uh, in person April 24th through the 26th because this initial closure order is only three weeks and we'll be through it. And here we are and we're doing our retreat online. (laughs) And I I had no idea that we'd be canceling events into the summer, but here we are. And guess what, there's not a damn thing I could do about it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> other than adapt and so i really have been forced to taking my life and my business into more of a one day at a time mindset yeah and i, and I can hear janet in my ear saying you're not drinking you're staying sober you're doing what you need to do
2: mm-hmm. how cool that you can still hear her mm-hmm. i just think that's kind of a beautiful thing with people and relationships and people who have influenced us in such beautiful ways that we can still hear them with us.
1: That's correct. Thank you so much for, thank you so much for having me. It was a delight talking to both of you.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Uh, Well, I wanted to say we normally end with gratitudes uh, where we Ah. talk about some things that we're thankful for. And I really enjoy ending the episode that way. So, uh, well, what are you grateful for?
1: Mm. It's a great recovery strategy. Also making me think of <laughs> Janet. So she's probably the first on my gratitude Aww. list because whenever I would complain about something, she would hear my complaint, but then have me do some gratitudes as well. So I'm, I'm grateful for the presence of that woman Janet Leff in my life. I'm grateful for this experience to have this conversation today. And students who've come through the Institute for Creative Mindfulness, like you, Julie, who create a space where we can have these conversations. Uh, I'm grateful for the Internet (laughs) that allows us to to do this. I'm grateful for my cup of coffee I'm sitting on, Um, not sitting on, (laughs) sipping on. (laughs) And uh, I'm grateful for my cats who are hanging out nearby. That's mine for today.
2: I am really grateful, Jamie, that you are with us and what a joy to, like I mentioned earlier, reading your different books and sitting with your teaching and now being part of our podcast. That means so much to me and um just thankful for this. I'm honestly thankful for the season that the pandemic is so unique in hearing so many different trainings and perspectives and people coming together at the best that they're able to do and knowing that sometimes we can show up with energy and passion and sometimes we're tired and trying to take good care of ourselves and everything in between that. And we're figuring it out just as we go and being present with that um, is the process. It really is. So I'm thankful for all of that.
1: Wonderful.
0: Yeah. I wanted to say I am just thankful that i see why while people are feeling like this vulnerability and this insecurity and what tomorrow will look like people are really kind of coming together i think and um helping out their community uh i know like the food banks are full the lines are long and i know even my neighbors throughout the street are constantly offering like does anybody need food? I picked up some extra. And so I, I see kind of like a coming together. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, I've been contacting some of my old friends and reaching out to some people that I have in a while. So um, I just think that it's strange sometimes how we're brought together and kind of join the same side. But anyway, uh, I'm also grateful for my chicks. I like to uh, mention them as often as possible. He has chickens. Jamie.
2: Okay. He he recently (laughs) got more too. I don't even know what the count is right now. He just recently got little baby chicks that we just got videos last night of how they're growing and they're lovely. Yeah.
0: Anyway, (laughs) thanks so much for joining us. It was so much fun. Uh, Uh, And for our listeners, thanks for joining us as well. Um, We will see you next week on our regular community roots. See you then.
2: Thanks, everybody.